Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello, can I please speak with Sheila Kuehl? Sheila Kuehl is the only person in this whole entire house. Thank you so much for being part of the quarantine tapes and taking the time to speak to me. Tell me, Sheila, what what have you been up to for the last seven months of of this delirious quarantine time? (laughs) Delirious usually connotes something enjoyable, but... um, (laughs) Well, well, dire, dire, dark. Whatever. Unprecedented, I hear a lot. Um, Well, I'm a Los Angeles County supervisor, and Los Angeles County, if it were a state, would be the eighth largest state. So we have 10 million people suddenly to care for in probably the largest crisis we've ever faced. So we have this huge public health crisis. The board of supervisors that oversees Los Angeles County is five people. So I am one of them. Uh, and where most people have uh, gone home to work, and we have as well, uh, my work, though I'm doing it from home, is probably at least four times what it was because we have the entire public health crisis to worry about all the people who are unemployed, whether or not we should reopen restaurants, bars, uh, schools, etc. And so um, in addition to that, of course, we've had Uh, 23 fires in California, I guess maybe 10 of them in Southern California that we've had to deal with. And um, and not not to say that uh, all of the protests and all of the civil rights uh, issues are also affecting us. So that's what I've been doing for the last seven months is being one-fifth of the government of the largest county in the United States. Goodness me, I I was going to ask you a question which you've in a way begun to answer, but perhaps you can further unpack. What is, in fact, the L.A. County Board of Supervisors and what kinds of decisions does it have the power to make and perhaps not to make? Well, in um, the, the 50 states treat their counties differently. In California, there are 58 counties Each of them has five supervisors, no matter how large or small. And so I represent two million people. Um, And the decisions that we make are essentially everything that the federal and state governments have a policy about and fund, but don't carry out. Uh, Medical work, for instance, we have four hospitals and about 100 clinics. Uh, all the mental health department work, uh, providing actual services. So we run the transit system uh, in Los Angeles. We are oh, we oversee all the foster care system. We oversee the jails and juvenile justice, um, parks, beaches, uh, trails, uh, different recreation venues, and uh, public health, mental health, physical health. 
Goodness me, and you, you've you've had such a long career and varied career in government, having previously worked in the California State Assembly and Senate. What is it do you feel that citizens should understand about corporate power and how it influences government? Well, I think that what they should understand is not so much how corporate power influences government, but how corporate power is very interested in there being less and less government to curb them. And that's really what we have seen over the last 30 years off and on in the federal government primarily, uh, where, but I think people are somewhat taken in uh, by proposals made by corporate power. For instance, uh, the claim that a corporation is a person. Mm. And this having uh, uh, won the day in the court means that every time a corporation gives $50 million to some right-wing uh, campaign, that they cannot be proscribed from doing that because it's considered free speech, which before that decision only belonged to an individual, not to a phony person like a corporation. And, of course, the reason it's called a corporation, uh, which, as you know, comes from the same root as the word corpus, means that it is a form of person that can be sued instead of the people that run the corporation. That's why it was started. Um, So in terms of government, what I would want people to understand is the deep importance of government. And frankly, I think they've all awakened to that more and more over the last four years as they understand the destruction and and what we've seen recently with COVID, the uh, actual destruction of life. Uh, caused by the inability of the federal government to govern. Um, the the uh, executive branch, who knows nothing about governing and has pretty much not done anything. So the notion that government is important seems to have suddenly occurred to millions of people, which is why this very day that you and I are speaking, which is um, probably different by the time it's broadcast, uh, 30 million Americans have already voted. And so um, it is very interesting to me how much more interest and understanding there is about the importance of government in your life. Uh, the fact that we are the backup, the fact that we provide so much uh, medical assistance, the fact that we fight the fires, uh, etc. I think it's just occurring to people that cutting their taxes and cutting their taxes may not have been the benefit that they thought it was. You've you've spoken about, um, in a way, certain models one might have. And, and one of the things that I found fascinating, Sheila, reading about your life story is the meeting you had, brief as it may have been, with Thurgood Marshall. And, <laughs> and I, I thought it might inspire a little smile. And I, I'd love to know, you know, what was it like? And are there figures in politics that you you might model yourself on or turn to now in this moment um, where inspiration is necessary? Absolutely. Um, to talk about um, Justice Marshall for just a moment, uh, when I was so fortunate as to be able to go to the Harvard Law School, I had never, my parents had not even gone to college, and I was out of college uh, for about 15 years before I decided to go to law school and just applied to Harvard on a whim, and I think they they may have accepted me on a whim, I'm not sure. 
But um, at the moot court competition, Thurgood Marshall was my chief judge of the three. And I was lucky enough uh, to be able to be named best oralist at that contest. And he came down off the bench and um, took my hand in both of his, his being quite a bit larger than mine, and said, Lady, I like your style. Um, and I just about melted because this was a man whose career himself, all the way from the dangers that he underwent trying to insist on the integration of schools in the South, or even some kind of equal treatment, and being beaten and chased and threatened, um, it was inspirational just to know his story and to meet him. Uh, at Also at law school, I was fortunate enough to meet Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was the mm-hmm. keynote speaker at an event that I helped to plan, a week-long event celebrating women. She was a professor at the time, not on the bench yet. And of course, of all of them, she has provided the most inspiration. But I think in terms of politicians or elected people, Um, probably the greatest inspiration for my life was John Kennedy. Uh, He came to speak at UCLA when I was 19. I was a student there. Royce Hall, which is our large auditorium there, was filled to overflowing. So I was listening at an overflow area outside, listening to him speak. And I was so moved by his um, devotion to the public good that the, the notion of government really was not to, not to do everything they were told, but to see themselves as existing for the good of the people. And it was a very, very moving moment for me. I had not really thought of running for office at all until I turned 50, actually. So it was quite a bit later. But I think um, his example was uh, really the basic one for me. A reading that I had done about Abraham Lincoln, uh, that was also um, really kind of a role model because uh, he, uh, I I think um, FDR, others who had led the country really taught us so much about leadership. And um, I believe I internalized a lot of that uh, ethic and that notion of responsibility for those who are not able to gain for themselves the things to which they're entitled. I'm always so amazed how a moment can strike us 20 or 30 years later. Mm-hmm. You know, there you were in the overflow room, not even in Royce Hall, hearing, right. hearing that speech. And somehow it, 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 strike, it struck you so many years later, um, which, which I think is, is, is truly re- a, a remarkable phenomenon. It, it happens when we go and see a, a play in the, uh, in the theater or a movie or a book, and 20 years later, there's an echo. Um, you know, it's so true, Paul, because I, you may also know that I had a, a, a television career before I ever did all the rest of this. I do. And one of the characters that I played in one of the series I did was uh, a woman named Zelda Gilroy, and she was not considered very beautiful or good-looking, but she was the smartest kid in the room. And she was pretty clear about uh, what she wanted to do, though at the time in the 50s, what she wanted to do was to help Dobie, her boyfriend, or someone she wanted to be her boyfriend, though he didn't want to. 
But the reason I bring it up is because we did that show in the late 50s, early 60s, when the women's movement was really um, strong in this country in the early 70s, I started getting letters from young women who had seen that series, to your point, 15 years before, and said, I remember that character very well, but it didn't mean as much to me then as it does to me now. An independent young woman who knew what she wanted, but wasn't you know, mean to anyone, was very good to everyone. Um, but it was her, their first example of a smart woman on television, because at that time, all the other lead women in series were not considered that smart. So we just never know. Um, we just never. We just. We just never <laughs> so know. Yeah, we just never know what what effects an experience will will have upon us. You've led efforts to establish a single payer healthcare system in California. How close did you come? Do you feel to achieving that goal? And do you hope that in California, a single payer healthcare system might emerge from this pandemic? Um, we came very close. I actually think it was sort of a miracle. Uh, we passed a single-payer planning system through both houses of the legislature in two different sessions. But unfortunately for us, uh, our governor, who uh, had been um, thrown out of office, recalled, uh, forced a very special election, and out of that election, Arnold Schwarzenegger was elected, and I don't think he ever would have been, except for a special election, because there were 103 people running for governor in this special election, and everybody knew his name, so he got to be the governor. Now, he wasn't nearly as bad as Donald Trump, but he didn't know anything about governing either. Um, and so when the bill landed on his desk, he simply vetoed it. And so we sent it back to him again in the next session, and he vetoed it again. So we came very close. Getting it through both houses of the legislature is not as easy as it sounds. Um, for now, uh, I think that it would be a very good thing to have um, a single-payer system in California because so very many of our people are uninsured. Uh, they can't afford insurance. They can't get insurance. Although the ACA, which many people call Obamacare, uh, really corrected a lot of the worst problems in that it opened insurance, affordable insurance, to a lot more people, millions and millions and millions, and also said that you couldn't turn people down for pre-existing conditions, which is one of the very most important things because all the insurance companies were cherry-picking the uh, healthy people and leaving unhealthy people to essentially county health to pick up, which made it really unaffordable. I don't know whether people will have the guts to pass a single-payer system, even in California, because it requires that you not be able to buy insurance from private insurance companies except to augment it. Now, we've already got Medicare. That's exactly a single-payer system. Uh, and frankly, I don't know a senior that thinks they can live without it. But we can augment it if we want to. And that system, I think, would work very well. I wish we would do it in California. And even more importantly, I wish we'd do it in the country. In, in 1961, Sheila, Ronald Reagan 
said the following about Medicare. If we don't stop it, one of these days you and I are going to spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. <laughs> what comes to your mind when you hear these words? Well, I think we found out that he had Alzheimer's for quite a longer time than we knew. Um, and I think that indicating that if we don't stop Medicare, which I think you indicated was his quote, uh, that there would be a loss of freedom. Um, you know, it's, it's very interesting. Medicare does depend on everyone putting money in, not just seniors. So in a way, everyone is paying forward to uh, a time when they can access it. And he may have been saying that uh, our children will not be free because they're putting money into an insurance system that they can't collect on until they're 65. I'll, I'll be the kindest I can be to him. But insurance is always like that. Right. You and I pay into our insurance and we don't use it every day. We're paying in just in case we're going to need it. And so it is a very important thing. But more important, Paul, I think, is the idea that we all collectively contribute right. to the general good. And we all then benefit from it. And that, I think, is something that um, may be restored to America, because that, I think, was a very important underpinning of our concept. We see it most when we're at war where everybody says, oh, we've got to all pitch in because, you know, we've got an enemy. But it would be good for us to be able to see it when we're at peace as well. Brings me, uh, the, the way you expressed all this brings me back to fully understanding why in that speech of John F. Kennedy meant so much mm -hmm. to you. Um, mm -hmm. for those very reasons. In, and in, in 2000, you said something uh, which I'd like to repeat back to you now. You said, overall, civil rights has made nothing but progress, slowly, but nothing but progress. Do you still feel that way in this, um, let's call it, Trump era? I do. Uh, I think that it's always under threat, uh, probably gr more greatly now um, in terms of the Supreme Court, uh, because we count on the Supreme Court to uphold civil rights. Civil rights are just laws. They can be challenged. But when I look at what the Reverend Dr. King and uh, all those who worked with him over many, many years, talking about Thurgood Marshall earlier, to establish the right, uh, certain rights of uh, our African-American uh, neighbors, uh, which has gone on to be, I think, the model for uh, the women's movement, for whole communities of color, for the LGBTQ community. Um, and we've seen gains since the 50s that I think are uh, mostly on the upward track everyone's gains are always at risk. Mm. That's why we have to continue to take it seriously, that we fight for them, that we pay attention, that they not be taken away. But in the United States, generally, we have gone in a forward motion, uh, trying to establish more and more equity and equality. But you see, by what's happened this year, in terms of the murders of so many African-American men, by uh, police and sheriff, 
and uh, just the the status of race in this country that we uh, it's still aspirational for us but it is aspirational and i do think an awful lot of people are saying i don't think i ever quite understood i'm taking this more seriously now uh, at least i hope that's the case which brings me to this question. The, 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 the George Floyd protests sparked many, many conversations about budgetary priorities. The economist Stephanie Kelton has said that we should think of bu budgets as moral documents. Do you agree? I do. I think the budget is nothing but a statement of values. Uh, in Los Angeles County, for instance, we have a $38 billion budget. Yeah. About uh, three-quarters of it comes from the feds and the states, and they tell us generally what to do and how to allocate, but not specifically. Uh, the other quarter comes from locally generated revenue, and that we allocate specifically on our own. And whether we do it to the sheriff's department for a jail or to the community for community investment, whether we uh, you know, fund more law enforcement well, rather than mental health services in the community, uh, how we fund our schools and how little we fund them, all of that is a statement of values. Do you want more education? Do you want people to have a second chance? Would you like them to be able to uh, get better when they're sick? And are you willing to help? It's all a statement of values. You know, in that context, I'd like you to to explain to our listeners what care first and jails last actually means and what efforts you yourself have made to change the criminal justice system in, in L.A. where so many, so many people are incarcerated. Well, it's, uh, it's interesting. In the time of COVID, when we started out in March, there were 17,000 people incarcerated in L.A. County jails. That is not the state prison. That is just the county jails. And now there are 12,000. So we have reduced incarceration by 5,000, much of it because of the pandemic, where we needed more space, we needed people out. And what it shows me is that we can do it. Uh, about almost half of the people there haven't even had their trials yet. It's simply that they can't afford bail. And so our notion of care first, jail last is to say that we want people out who don't need to be in just because they can't afford bail. We want people out who are more amenable to treatment than simply being locked up in a cell, which doesn't help them. They go out, they come back, they go out, they come back. We need more services in the community in order that people can get better. And it's not just those with mental health issues. There are many issues of uh, substance use disorder that need treatment, not jail. And also just the notion of second chance, where people have not had the ability to get a job um, because they haven't had the training. So what Care First Jail Last means is that the government of Los Angeles County is going to allocate more and more of our budget toward these kinds of community services and less to uh, jails and law enforcement. It's encouraging to hear this. You've, you've been concerned in the, in the past about issues of election integrity. What lessons can we learn from past presidential elections, do you think? 
Well, that is a kind of a loaded question because we could say, for instance, in the last presidential election, that what we learned <laughs> was that maybe the popular person that gets the popular vote ought to be president. Um, since, as we know, Secretary Clinton got three million more votes than Mr. Trump. Um, but in, I guess in terms of uh, election uh, integrity, uh, we've paid a lot of attention to making certain that people can get their ballots. For instance, in California, partly because of COVID, though I think we're ahead of there earlier, everyone gets a mail-in ballot, which we've been advocating for for a very long time. Makes no sense to me that I have to sign up for a mail-in ballot in order to get it. Why don't I just get it in the mail? And if I want to vote in person, I can still do that. If I want to drop it off, I can do that. And there, I think we've made some strides, and other states have as well. Um, I don't know whether uh, the uh, sort of intimidation and lies about the Postal Service are going to make any difference, but hopefully not. And um, I guess over the years, we'll just see. Sheila, in closing, um, sadly, in, in, <laughs> in, in recent decades, enormous progress has been made on issues of, of marriage equality. Again, what lessons from that fight, which has been your fight, can be applied to other struggles for justice? I think it's very important for people to understand that discrimination is sort of invented uh, for out of differences. Uh, and it only works for the people who say, I'm better because I am a certain color or a certain gender or a certain sexual orientation. That the truth is there's no better gender, no better color of skin, no better sexual orientation or, or gender identity. It's simply something that works for people that want to take power. And so if people could simply understand and struggle against um, thinking that they're worse, thinking that other people are worse, uh, and understand the common humanity, uh, you know, we got marriage equality and the world did not fall apart. I mean, it's interesting to me because everyone said this will destroy marriage. And yet it has only strengthened marriage because people said marriage is a good thing. We want to be bound by law. We want to be bound by vows. Um, and it is stabilizing to society. And as people see that if you do away with discrimination, you get better, not worse. You gain, you don't lose. I think that's the lesson in marriage equality is those things that people are afraid of uh, do not come to pass. And rather, we're all strengthened by it. Sheila, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Well, mine too. <laughs> Thank you so very, very much. And I hope that in the future we, we get to meet each other in person once this delirious, dire, dark time, <laughs> miserable time in many ways comes to an end because it too will pass. I will look forward to that, to meeting you and to having this time go by. Thank you very, very much and take good care and stay safe and continue the struggle and the work. Thank you. Thank you so much for the interview. I really enjoyed it. Bye. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, Go to dublab.com slash support.